Greetings, dear listeners. This episode was a scorcher. We had our friend Jason Willick of the Washington Post on the show today to talk about the Trump raid and what this moment tells us about the health of our democracy. It was a contentious discussion where we really got into some meaty first principles. Shadi and I go at it hard about what can sustain a democracy and whether any society truly deserves authoritarianism, while Jason makes some profound observations about politics and the rule of law. On to the show. Okay, so uh, what do you think? Where should where should we start? I mean, I could start like this, which is to say that um, you know, seconds before we started recording, seconds, minutes, uh, hour, um, there was a. Seems like the the story broke that 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 um, the raid on Trump's uh, villa in Florida was actually not floated all the way up to the attorney general. That in fact it was just signed off by uh, by uh, the head of the FBI, and that it was, at least in the telling of this one article in Newsweek, um, you know the product that they were all so focused on having this be a almost procedural sort of thing where they just go in and Trump's not in his uh, in in his house and everything uh, to just sort of make it as low key as possible so it wouldn't have like a political impact as if they. On some level, just they, they didn't even anticipate that there would be political impact. So, you know, I we, we wanted to have you on, Jason. Yesterday we were talking about this. Jason, you and I were talking about it on chat. Shadi and I were talking about it as well. Um, you know, about the, the impacts of, of uh, the, the Trump raid um, on, on democracy, on America, on the future of the republic and the rest of this. But now when it turns out that it's, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, more idiocy than malice that that led to this. I still think we have all sorts of things to talk about. Uh, but you know, I, just to, to situate readers, uh, uh, listeners as they're as they're tuning into this, uh, that's the state of play in the whole drama as we got started. Um, so Can I don't know, Jason. I mean, what do you what do you what do you think? Like uh, you read the the Newsweek thing. Like, uh, what do you make of that? For example, is it do you? You cover a lot of the sort of law stuff. You've been, you know, writing about uh, the possible prosecution of Trump after January sixth. Um, do you think this is this is plausible, or are they hiding something? Do you think that that there might be more to this? What's what's your sort of initial take as you as you read that story? Well, the Department of Justice isn't saying anything um, on the record, which is annoying because you know it's one thing if they're going to say. We do not discuss ongoing investigations. We do things by the book. It's another if you're leaking like a sieve to all the reporters while claiming that you don't d discuss it so that, you know, you're telling the Post and the Times that you have that this is just based on records and it's not based on January 6th. And then you're giving these these quotes not attributed, but with more detail to Newsweek saying, you know, who approved it. And Garland didn't, in fact, approve it. It was signed off by Chris Ray, the head of the FBI. So they seem to be, you know trying to have it both ways where they play by do it by the book and don't um don't comment on it while they also you know try to leak selectively to control the narrative um so it's hard to know for sure if they're trying to hide things or walk things back or put attention on certain things 
I guess, you know, the way things have played out for the last 36 hours, it's generally, you know, all pointed to, yeah, they just were looking for the records and they went to a magistrate judge in a fight with Trump over the records. And this is how they tried to do it. So that, you know, that would suggest that the speculation that they're actually looking for something related to January 6th or there was something larger going on is not the case. But, you know, I, I, it's 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 been what? Uh, 48 hours since the raid, we, as we know, with these kinds of things, more more stuff could come out. And Scott Perry, a Republican representative, just announced that he uh, had his stuff searched by the FBI and he's somebody who they were looking at in relation to January 6th. So I wouldn't rule out yet uh, the January 6th connection. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure, at least from my standpoint, that it really matters all that much who approved it or not. Um, the effects, in my view, will be similar. And maybe I can just, I don't want to do like a rant or a, a mini rant, but please, I can say a few things that might prompt both of you, because I've gone through a bit of a shift in terms of my own reaction to the Trump raid. Um, at first, I was somewhat neutral, and I just tweeted one or two things that were critical of Republicans, and I think right, rightly so, I thought that their response, including Ron DeSantis's response, was absurd. Ron DeSantis had a tweet where he referred to the Biden administration as the regime. I think that's inappropriate, to put it mildly, because uh, we do live still in a democracy, however flawed it may be. A democratic and regime, I think no? it also <laughs> <laughs> Go on. And I think it also does a disservice to those who actually live under dictatorship, and this has always bothered me about the new right, the far right, or even just Republicans increasingly, they talk about America as if it's an authoritarian regime. This is not, and, and you know, it makes it very hard to have a reasonable argument with folks like that because then words have no meaning. If you think America has actually become a regime then we we're just we're not on the same plane of reality from a basic political science standpoint about what this country actually is. Okay, but that's that's where I started. Just as some background to listeners, increasingly I am not neutral and I want to be careful about what I say and my original desire was to stay out of this and to say relatively little about it, but I do feel pretty strongly about what's happened. So, I mean, I can't just be relatively quiet about it because it does actually relate to pretty foundational questions about our democracy. And because um, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing a lot about the quote unquote problem of democracy, I should probably, you know, I should probably have something to say about this. But um, I think that the more I think about this, well, first of all, regardless of whether the FBI raid itself is justified, and I don't think any of us can really speak to it because we just don't have enough details. I would want to just put that to the side and say, even if it is entirely justified, um, it's not good for American democracy. So the fact that I see a lot of liberals and Democrats celebrating this step is crazy to me and incredibly irresponsible. If anyone looks at this news and says, yay, then I don't know what, you know, then I don't know if they really, 
I don't know if they're thinking about the health of American democracy. They may be thinking about their dislike or even hatred of Donald Trump. So people are using their dislike of Donald Trump and they're allowing that to distort their assessment of what's happening. And um, and that's been really frightening I, to see what is almost a unanimous response on the part of liberals and Democrats, at least um, the ones who I've read and obviously folks, uh, you know, pontificating on Twitter, although we don't want to we don't want to take that as being representative, although it is representative of a particular elite that spends a lot of time on Twitter. These people, um, you know, I just think to myself, if the I don't know what the saying is, if the shoe was on the other foot, in other words, um, they're, they're so trusting of the FBI, they're so trusting of prosecutorial discretion, all of a sudden, this has never been the left's position. And it's never been, you know, I, I could go on, I just find it incredibly bizarre to see people having this unquestioning faith in the FBI, in prosecutorial decisions, it's just remarkable to me. And they wouldn't stand for that if if the positions were reversed. So it's also an incredibly hypocritical position for them to have. Okay, that did turn out to be a rant. <laughs> I don't know, Jason, run with any of that, because I know you and I have been chatting about all sorts of things. So just pick up any thread of what Shadi threw out there and, and, and let's, let's run with it. Well, one thing I would say is, I, I find this kind of depressing because I think all of this, you know, as with all things, Trump just sort of confirms uh, all the polarizing tendencies. So Shadi said that Democrats wouldn't be have such a benign uh, view and uh, uh, subservient view to the, you know, the law enforcement authorities if the um, if it was a different context. And of course, that's true. Uh, and also, you know, Republicans would 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 um, have historically been the party of law and order and have applauded federal law enforcement. So it's just like everybody is just creating exceptions, you know, and it's just sort of an unstoppable uh, trend that uh, people are going to support these institutions when it serves their objectives and not when it doesn't. And, and you know, Shadi said whether the raid is justified. I, I've also, you know, another another sort of depressing thought is no one's ever going to agree on whether it's justified. Uh, Democrats are going to say it's justified no matter what. And um, Republicans are going to say that it's not justified, even if, you know, something big turned up. I mean, that's what we've seen with all Trump related things with Russia. You know, I remember when the IG report came out on the FBI's handling of Trump's of Comey and Trump's Russia investigation, uh, the Re Russia investigation, he was uh looking into Trump in and, you know, the IG report for some people confirmed that Comey had done nothing wrong and there was there was adequate predicate for the investigation. Everything was fine. And for other people, it confirmed the FBI's abuse uh, of its authority. It, it's just we have we have the same facts. We we look at the same things and we draw completely different conclusions because it's not it's no longer something that's going to be resolved by evidence. We don't have smoking guns anymore. To some people, it looks like a smoking gun. To other people, it looks like a like a gun that hasn't been fired. It's it's it, so so we're just you know, we're all going to double down on our uh, positions. And and so I that's why I find, you know, and this is what Trump does to our politics and the reaction to him. His his sort of interaction with American partisan politics just produces this loop of, of polarization and 
recriminations and there's no end to it. There's no conclusion. The idea that there's ever going to be a conclusion is is delusional. People are, are just going to hold their views even stronger at the end of this. Yeah. You know, and, and Jason, why? Why? What, but I guess I just want to put out a question that is more rhetorical, but maybe you do have thoughts on it. I mean, presumably some because a lot of a lot of the people on, you know, my quote unquote side of the spectrum, I think, are otherwise well-meaning. Not all of them, of course, but some of them certainly are. And I've been surprised how some people have taken a, you know, a very hard line Um in supporting this raid and investigation without question, without doubt. And I marvel at their certainty. And I I don't, I mean, most on most things, people don't have any, like certainty is usually elusive. So it's it's interesting to see this, but these are, what what's dry, I just, I'm trying to understand how they can't see the dangers of their position. And well, because it's, it seems obviously inconsistent because I'm sure if you told them, well, if Hillary was being targeted by law enforcement and she actually had been, has been, so that's not like a hypothetical, presumably they would be more skeptical. I mean, before before you jump in, Jason, you know, for me, Shadi, I, I just, uh, you and I have been, again, offline sort of going at this. It's It's... You said many people on my side are well-meaning people, and and again offline, but but you know, and but you said it on the podcast as well. You you said you know you're concerned that the Republican Party is losing a commitment to democracy, and my my repose to you offline, less online. Uh, I, I, you know I, I think we do need to talk about this uh, on the podcast. Is I, I I don't I don't see this as as a problem of well-meaning people. I and I and I don't see. Uh, democracy surviving or not because people believe in democracy. Um, I think what you're seeing right now, exactly what you described, is our society as a whole being unable to sustain democratic norms is what it comes down to. And that has nothing to do with individuals believing one thing or another. It's that, it's that, that, that what Jason was describing, this polarization, this whole um, uh, cycle that again, you know, I know people really want to blame, and I'm more than happy to blame Trump as an accelerant and uh, an incredibly toxic force that 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 drives us further down the spiral. But we're all going down the spiral, and it's nothing to do with with beliefs, uh, commitments to values, none of that. Because exactly, you know, what you said and, and what Jason just said, right? This this was the dynamic during Russia Gate. Um, what, what, what most Americans seem to have forgotten, which I'll never forget my former editor, uh, at the, at the American interests, Jason, I don't, I don't know if he ever said it in front of you when we were there together. Um, he, he, he would loudly say, everyone knows that the FBI is the dumbest service in the entire U S government. <laughs> right. And, and, and somehow as a, as a country, we've forgotten that. And now it's just is, is, oh, the FBI is on our side. Oh, get her, lock her up. Oh, get them, lock them up, you know, and it's 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 pure mob witch hunt mentality, right? I'll take well, yeah, issue have... with one thing, Demir, before Jason, because yeah. just because you you put me on the spot on this <laughs> democracy question, yeah, and I do disagree quite a bit with what you just said. I do think it has a lot to do with a basic democratic question, which is in in political moments of extreme polarization and duress. 
people's commitment to democracy is tested in a very specific way. They are so afraid of the potential results of free elections if the other side wins. They consider the other side to be so personally threatening, either to themselves, their community, to their sense of the republic writ large. So it's also a question of the meaning of the state and the nature of the state. And because the stakes are so incredibly high, um, neither side, although, again, I want to qualify, I think it's certainly the Republican Party that is less committed to democracy at the current moment. Disagree. But that's not to say that Democrats are particularly good on this either. And I think we're going to find in 2024, if Trump wins, or even if Ron DeSantis wins, Democrats are going going to have a lot of trouble accepting the result as legitimate. Why don't they accept the result as legitimate? Because the other side is existentially threatening, right. which means to me that their commitment to small d democracy is not strong enough. Now we can ask, we can interrogate why their commitment isn't strong enough and what can be done about that. But at some basic level, they aren't willing to respect democratic outcomes that are not to their liking. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a rhetorical debate. We're mostly on the same page. I would just say that saying something like the Republican Party is not committed to democratic norms, and then all you have to do is read Jason's paper for a little bit, the the opinion page on there, where it is the Republicans are the, you know, and not just Trump, not just that Trump is a uniquely toxic force that's driving us to this, but the Republican Party has been taken over by a Hitlerian conviction and in internalizing that, I don't see that much of a difference in in the whole in the whole sort of thing because honestly, there are many well-meaning uh, Republicans on the other side who feel the same way about liberals and 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 the rest of it. And the question is then like, who's right and what's true? I don't think those are relevant questions. But Jason, sorry, we've been we've been talking past you. Do you have any thoughts? Well. I was just going to say on the FBI specifically, you're having now some conservatives, I think uh, some Republican representative may have said abolish the FBI and you're having some Republican pundits uh, or conservative leaning pundits say this. And that might sound kind of glib, like abolish the FBI. That's like abolish the police, like whatever, like, but, but there actually is, you know, a tension in America that like basically law, the police power was meant to largely be carried out by the states and we, we've created a national police force that actually doesn't sit that that well with our federal constitution, which which sort of saw a very limited uh, national law enforcement role. And, and, you know, and instead we've created, you know, federal laws so that we do have this national police force and it's enforcing, you know, it has jurisdiction over virtually everything, at least in theory. And, and that is a real a real structural problem. So I don't know. If we're going to ever abolish the FBI, of course, there's going to be federal law enforcement. But there is this question of how the structures that we've created fit within our system. And we've seen some of the problems with having a national police force and its tendency to get involved in politics. I mean, it was it was knee deep, hit, uh, you know, shoulder deep in politics in the, the pre Watergate era. And now and then we claim that we removed it from politics. And of course, it's going to be involved. And that's a big dilemma. The other thing I would say about the democracy question is. Demir, you shared this uh, article of some, you know, former federal prosecutor. I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to the Trump days when former federal prosecutor was the pundit, you know, that you were always listening to, and they were always telling you what's happening, what what this search means, what this arrest means. Anyway, some former federal prosecutor said we can charge Trump with the Espionage Act for his misuse of classified 
information, which just reminds me that that's what Eugene Debs uh, was charged with. So, you know, if you imagine a time when in America where democracy seems uncertain, where the forces of authoritarianism seen on the march around the globe, but you have a progressive American president who's con committed to democracy, committed to self-determination, using the Espionage Act. I mean, that's how the Wilson administration felt when it was using the Espionage Act against Eugene Debs, who was a candidate for president and, you know, won millions of votes, I believe, from from a jail cell. Yeah. Um, a socialist, and, and, right? Socialist convicted socialist. felon. That's the other thing that, that has been on Twitter a lot, right? <laughs> they, they convicted him, they threw him in jail, and he won 3.2% or something of the vote uh, from prison. Right. And, and, and if you can just imagine at the time how how that was protecting democracy. That's what protecting democracy meant. Eugene Debs was a threat to democracy. There was authoritarians on the march. He was, you know, he was, you know, essentially with his advocacy against World War One, giving aid and comfort to these people. And it's just, it just is a reminder of how when you're in the moment, you know, what seems like being on the side of democracy is not necessarily seen uh, that way a um, hundred years later. To be fair, though, I mean, the Eugene Debs story also points to the fact what Shadi and I spent a lot of time talking to Walter uh, Mead last week about, you know, that that in fact, you know, the Republic has been in has been in these wrangles before. And it's sort of, you know, uh, part and parcel of, of, of our tumultuous democracy. So, I mean, in a, in a in a weird way, it does give some bizarre comfort to to how this sort of stuff goes. Um, you know, and, it's also yeah. I, I would just say about the, the Debs thing, because it's also like. Americans are like, liberals used to be liberal. Look at the 60s. They were pro-free speech and they were liberal. Now they're becoming, you know, um, now they're trampling on civil liberties. They don't care about it anymore. You know, and, and we feel like this is some uh, big uh, revelation or some big departure. It's like, no, progressivism and it's, you know, we think of the Wilson administration as the one that inaugurated sort of progressivism as a major political ideology in the United States. And it came into being, you know, throwing throwing dissidents in jail. So I'm not saying that, you know, that's what today's progressives do. I'm just saying the idea that, you know, the, the sort of categories, the tidy categories we have of different political ideologies in the U.S. are not, you know, consistent over yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the thing that strikes me um, on, on, on this is uh, another disjunct, um, which I... I I would like us to chew over uh, sort of as a, a core question. And that's, and that's uh, the debate about prosecutorial dis, uh, uh, discretion, but, but not in the way of that, that a lot of people have, have talked about it, um, you know, whether it's, it's, it's wise necessarily in the moment, but actually more of a first principle sort of approach to it. What you see, what I see when talking to and reading and uh, listening to uh, supporters, sort of um, unquestioning supporters of this raid, is a kind of quaint, uh, touching, um, and ultimately misguided belief that the law exists above the state, rather than the reality, from my perspective, which is, which is that the law emanates from the state. And and of course, you know, when you get to these sort of questions about uh, sovereignty and the ability to do anything, you know, on that level, really what you are talking about is, um, is, you know, the law becoming, if you understand the moment as the law existing as part, as within the state, not, not somehow existing universally and floating above it all, um, 
you realize sort of what's going on. And that's just sort of the normal flow of things. The, the, the weird thing is, to me, watching Democrats right now is that, you know, their view of Republicans and the, the Republican Party and Trump is that the law is what we're fighting for. You know, at least on a first principles basis, that strikes me as somewhat incoherent. Obviously, a good state has a good rule of law, but it's not that the rule of law exists somehow outside of the state. And it's our state that's actually uh, decaying right now, not our commitment to rule of law. That's not exactly crisp how I put it, but maybe you guys can help me unpack that a little well, bit. Well, look, I, I, think, I think it's odd that many liberals have this have this position considering that they're very skeptical of law enforcement in other contexts. Like this idea that the law is neutral, that, oh, if the FBI says so, or if it went through an internal process at the Department of Justice, even if it wasn't approved at the highest levels, they're making an argument about some kind of neutral rule of law, but they don't apply that in other contexts. And, you know, Every prosecutorial decision is a choice, and maybe it's worth bringing up a surprisingly good speech. And I, you know, I have to be careful about how I say this because <laughs> this is pretty much apostasy. But it's a podcast, so I mean, if people want to attack me, they'll probably have to attack me in context, or so I hope. But yes, they have to have gotten have this far after I did my rant at the beginning. But um, so this is a speech by former Attorney General Bill Barr um, at Hillsdale College um, in September 2020. Um, so we're talking about Trump's last Attorney General and someone who was very much associated with Trump's badness. You know, we can debate whether or not that was warranted, but putting that aside, he did give this speech, which I think makes some pretty interesting points about prosecutorial discretion. If I could sum it up relatively quickly, I think that, you know, part of his main message is um, that the prosecutor um, is a human being and you have to weigh different trade-offs when you're deciding who to investigate, who to charge. Um, you're making a choice because if you use the letter of the law, a lot of people could be considered as breaking the law. We make choices about who to prosecute. And he gives an interesting example of this. Um, uh, let me see. Oh yeah. Well, um, it is a little bit complicated, but basically, um, when the Department of Justice charged someone for violating the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act because she apparently put chemicals on her neighbor's doorknob because of uh, love, you know, acrimonious love triangle. Okay, by the letter of the law, that person could be charged. But is it warranted? Is it just? Is it the is it actually the right use of prosecutorial discretion? And you could apply that to a lot of different contexts. And um, he mentions as well as Supreme Court's unanimous position that quote unquote, not every corrupt act by state or local officials is a federal crime. So even in terms of how we investigate corruption, 
Um, corruption is not the same as a crime that should be prosecuted on the federal level. Um, he also quotes Supreme Court Justice um, Robert Jackson. It's a really good, oh, this is a really good one. Let me, let me find it here. Okay. Who says, quote unquote, the prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. So in theory, prosecutors can do quite a lot. They make decisions as individuals and they can overreach. And we have to, we have, and they have to weigh these different considerations. So the question as far, you know, if we're taking that as our inspiration, and I think generally speaking, even if people don't like um, William Barr, they might, you know, respect Robert Jackson if they have heard of him. But um, that basically, uh, I was gonna make a really profound point that I'm forgetting now, but but basically with, with any decision, there are competing concerns. In this particular case, I would argue that the competing concerns are worth considering carefully. So people say, oh, rule of law, accountability. If Trump committed a crime, he should be held accountable. He is not a divine ruler. He's now an ordinary private citizen. Fine. But quote unquote accountability isn't the only consideration that a prosecutor has. There are any number of other considerations. And for us, I think one thing that we should consider is whether this FBI raid and investigation increase the existential tenor of American politics. That's not good for democracy in my view. And if I had to point to the most important things that I'm concerned about when it comes to the future health of our democracy, it is the perception that political competition is existential. That means that, in other words, what I mean by that is we don't see our opponents as opponents. We see them as enemies to be defeated, again, because the stakes are so high. So even that's so we can talk about accountability, but we should also talk about whether or not this puts us on a path to worsening polarization. And as you would say, Demir, where one side doesn't see the state's actions as legitimate. So rule of law, does rule of law actually exist if 50% of the country doesn't consider the Department of Justice or the FBI to be respecting rule of law? It just, it's, you know, and anyway, um, so that's just some thoughts based on Barr's um, remarks in 2020. I don't know, Jason, if you have other thoughts on the implications of his speech and how it's relevant to this question of prosecutorial discretion. Sure. Well, I think I think you made a good point about, well, Trump should be treated like anyone else. It's like, well, OK, well, yes, we all agree with that in theory. But, you know, there's this old saying the rich and the poor alike are prohibited from sleeping under the bridge. You know, people are, are differently situated. Not everyone's going to sleep under the bridge. If in the Trump situation, yes, anyone with classified material, you know, it should be taken back by the government. OK, well, how many people are leaving the White House in a you know, a six hour rush after trying to overturn the election and being impeached. I mean, that's, you know, there's different circumstances where different people have classified information. And that's something, you know, it appears that the FBI may have made a mistake if they thought that this was the situation where you go in uh, with a raid rather than with a subpoena to compel the uh, production of this information. The other thing I would say on, you know, I was talking to Demir when there was some uncertainty about January 6th, and if the raid could have to do with this, 
Demir was asking, well, did Trump commit a crime on January 6th? You know, is there is there a crime that that he could be charged with? It's like, well, yes and no. It's a, it's an entirely uh, political question because the statute that's being contemplated, which is, you know, obstruction of, a, of an official proceeding basically hinges on the word corruptly, whoever corruptly obstructs an official proceeding. So um, so do you have a you know, was was Trump doing so corruptly? I, I suspect that that question maps onto your political understanding of January 6th. Well, he thought there might have been irregularities. He's Trump. He 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 thought, you know, he had to fight. Um, you know, was that really corrupt? I don't know. Versus he knew he lost. This was an orchestrated coup to overthrow the United States government. Um, it was it was corrupt. You know, the, our law exists especially because our law depends on state of mind. The criminal law generally requires that somebody act with a certain state of mind. And when we're so in these different universes, I mean, I think of these police videos, you might have thought that having, you know, body cams on the police would, you know, determine which police were good and which were bad and which committed a crime and which didn't. It's like to the contrary, we see the same video and draw different conclusions. So I worry that uh, this ability, you know, we saw basically what Trump did on January 6th. And uh, whether it's a crime, I personally do not uh, believe that that rises to the level of the crime as, as I understand the statute. But I think a lot of people do because they see the behavior differently. So I think we're going to struggle um, to have a, a rule of law in this context where we where we don't have the kind of consensus that we used to have, because it really did depend on it really does depend on having a consensus about what certain terms mean. You know, it's, it's full of terms like reasonable. What would a reasonable person do? Well, we, if, if people have, have such different values, um, you know, legal systems are supposed to reflect sort of the sense of the community. But if, but if people have different values, and to some extent, you know, juries from different places um, can, can address that. Of course, we're, we're in this problem that I like to point out where these federal investigations of, you know, politicians and trials of public figures are going to take place in D.C., which is a, a very liberal uh, jury pool. So it's... it's um, I think it's a big tangled mess and it's going to require, you know, people all the more prudence and all the more, um, you know, um, forbearance and, and wisdom in enforcing the law. So the, the thing that the way I read uh, the bar speech, which, again, I would really encourage all of our listeners to spend the, the 10 or so minutes just going through it. It's, it's not terribly long and it's very crisply written. Um, it's it's slightly different than than you came at it, Shadi, and it's reflected a little bit in what you were just saying, Jason. What 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 I feel like he's getting at is what I was sort of bumbling about earlier. Again, is this concept that I think a lot of people have that the law is something transcendent, when in fact, as you said, Jason, it reflects it reflects the community that it comes from. And what Barr is getting at, and I think it's a it's a really remarkably well put argument, is that. Uh, prosecution is a political act. Shadi, you you situated in terms of of uh, you know decisions by an individual, um, and you know, uh, Jason, you were talking about discretion, but but what's more to the point is that the rule of law, at the limit, is going to be a political act, and what Barr is calling for in the peace is, I suppose, something like Republican virtue and prudence in, uh, among the highest um, uh, officials in the land uh, 
that are entrusted with this immense power. Uh, and he's talking about the attorney general at the head of the DOJ. Um, because the power is so awesome um, and uh, their um, uh, accountability is tied to, uh, you know, not even through any sort of direct democracy, but, you know, through through an appointment and uh, then, you know, basically being appointed by the executive and then vetted by uh, the legislative. Um, the, it, it, it comes down to is that that basically it it is about individual prudence, but it's also about prudence uh, tied to understanding that the law is not transcendent, is not some sort of truth. The law is not the word of God. It is not it is not true. It is uh, what the state, you know, through a very complex process in a democracy has sort of come up with and accrued and 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 basically governs itself through and by. Um, you know, the, the the parallel that that is not explicit in the piece, but it's one that 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 struck me as I was reading it. It's it's again sort of like the the folk version of what people think about the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court reads a bunch of law and judges on it impartially. And part of the sort of um, you know again folk outrage at how the Supreme Court has been quote unquote politicized um, is. I think actually a misunderstanding of what the law is and what the Supreme Court is. And one of the things that, that again, people who follow the Supreme Court a lot more closely than me um, refer to all the time is that, uh, especially uh, the Chief Justice, this one and many previous before him, are always weighing their final um, rulings with an ear to what the society will be able to bear, basically, because even though they are legitimated through the Constitution and appointed to lifetime appointments, a good Supreme Court justice understands that their own legitimacy is actually paper thin and is based uh, on the reality that their writ is only respected insofar, or their writ is powerful only insofar as it's respected. So, you know, Shadi, at the end of your, your, your sort of description of Barr, you said, about the DOJ respecting the rule of law was the phrase I wrote down as you were saying. It's not that. It's not that the DOJ respects or doesn't respect the rule of law. It's that everything the DOJ does needs to be done with an ear to politics and understanding that the DOJ itself, its own legitimacy, is tied to whether the country, the community, um, actually thinks that it's acting in accordance with what it sees to be, you know, right, if you will. But that right is not truth. It's it's basically consensus. And this gets us back to where we are right now. And Jason, to what you're saying, that that the consensus is broken down. We we see the same video and we 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 have completely divergent uh, uh, understandings of it. We read the IG's report on the on the investigation, the Russiagate investigation. And I remember that that was a wild time that 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 it was just complete divergence as to what the IG's report actually said. Um, and, and that's where we are. That's why I think this is such a, such a, 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 a dangerous moment. I don't know what it was like when, when Wilson was, uh, was jailing Debs, but, but, um, but yeah, I think that's, well, the, I suppose, that's the key. Yeah. Okay. So it's dangerous. And I suppose the question is, and Jason, you said that the key now, at least, you know, in an ideal world is forbearance and wisdom were the words that you used. I completely agree. I suppose it's an, I, I mean, I, 
That's a nice thought, and maybe it will be possible for our grandchildren, but I don't see any plausible scenario by which we get to a point where a critical mass of people are exercising either wisdom or forbearance. Now, I do wonder if um, the original the original sin, but there's always an original sin before whichever original sin you're highlighting, is, okay, yeah, well, I can say it. Let me say it. Russiagate. That th because there wasn't an underlying crime, the fact that there were several years of investigation from law enforcement against a sitting president, first of all, I mean, doesn't set a great precedent. But then this question of the underlying crime, which you alluded to, uh, Jason, that if obstruction of just when you're obstructing justice for a um, because of a crime that didn't end up existing, it does call into question the whole endeavor. We don't have to go into that now. And I don't think Russiagate is nearly as bad as Rep as Republicans not respecting the outcome of the 2020 election. And we can debate the numbers, but, you know, according to various polls and, you know, we can problematize why people are saying that to pollsters, but also the fact that uh, as far as I can tell, a majority of um, Republicans on the national level were not willing to condemn Trump's claims of a stolen election. That's so, but, you know, but so Russiagate was bad, but then we saw something worse that sort of compounded. And then we get into this endless cycle. But it is worth pointing out that there is some responsibility on the part of Democrats for basically not accepting Trump's legitimacy from the get-go and finding ways to investigate him perpetually, even if there wasn't an underlying crime. But Jason, I don't know if that sounds right to you. I guess it's two things, forbearance well, and wisdom. How do we get that? Yeah, okay. Well, I would just say, I think that is right. And I would say before Russiagate, don't forget, there was but her emails. There was Hillary Clinton's email investigation, which she still, you know, harbors plenty of resentment over and tweets like but her emails, you know, and and it was the same FBI that was doing Hillary's emails as was then doing Russiagate, right? This question of whether she was mishandling classified information on this private server that she set up uh, for some reason. So, you know, it, it just goes back. And, and so... So, you know, Jim Comey was involved in both. Um, and and this question of getting the FBI to the extent possible to not be influencing our elections is ideal. But but again, you know, we, we should say we're talking about the legitimacy through the eyes of Trump supporters, through the eyes of, you know, progressives. It's, well, the law doesn't have legitimacy unless you prosecute. Correct. Correct. Because then you're you're allowing somebody to be above the law. So, um but the law, these investigations. But this is also, also. Let me just say this idea that no one can be above the law is absurd, considering that there are so many people who were and continue to be in effect above the law. Let's talk about the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and the fact that barely anyone um, suffered real consequences and was actually imprisoned for. Um, the kinds of activities that ruined hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives in different ways, or had a profound effect on ordinary people in a very tangible sense. But so, I mean, there's white collar criminals 
who are not actually put into prison. And so all of a sudden now, well, let's also be frank. I mean, the Obama administration um, adopted a very light touch when it came to prosecuting financial crimes in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Where was all the outrage um, then or now about that? I mean, it's just like, I, I, it's hard for me to take these claims seriously. But isn't, yeah, isn't the whatever. implication, isn't the implication though, like, again, let me push you both on this from my perspective. And I, I like saying this, I, I, and I think, I don't know, Jason, how much you recoil from it. I know, Shadi, you have recoiled from it, but it's the problem is, is, is this idea of transcendent justice. It's false. It doesn't exist like that. We have an idea of what justice is, but it's, it itself is political and politically uh, legitimated through consensus. Do you know what I mean? There is no such thing as justice that exists outside of this. I think that's a really profound and important point to sort of harp on. But but no, we, I mean, look. Yeah, go. I mean, at, at common law, a felony was something that was punished by death. So, you know, if you think about how many, you know, millions of, of people who are convicted felons now, I mean, we used to think it was just to, you know, actually, I mean, yeah, of course, we used to think it was all sorts of punishments we now consider barbaric were, were, were justice. We used to think all, uh, you know, it totally, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm someone who, who maybe uh, have gotten more cynical than absolutely the law and what we consider justice is a product of the political realities and consensus. And, and just on this question of the leadership of the DOJ, I think what we may be seeing with Merrick Garland, you know, if it's true that he didn't sign off on this and that this was just, and that they thought that this was no big deal, it's that you know, that far from showing this kind of um, uh, superior capacity for for processing all of the equities at, at stake here, that, that you have people now, you know, and I my read of, of some of these Democratic lawyer types is that they're very smart. You know, they got great LSAT scores. They went to great law schools. They can tell you all the precedents. But but that's totally missing that that sort of um, uh, ineffable thing. That, that we need to to keep the law together at a time like this of fracture and deteriorating consensus that that's missing because that you can't do a test for it. You can't do uh, there's no precedence that, that will tell you what to do exactly. You just need judgment. And uh, and, you know, it may be that that's that's uh, what we don't have. Yeah, I, it, they used to call it civic virtue. Right. And but it's judgment. Right. Because virtue, again, sort of gets into these ineffable transcendent things but it's it's prudence and and judgment uh that we're talking about the only thing shoddy you know i i i you know I, i'll save you a little bit of the you know russiagate being the original sin because you know i've written about this before um uh how bush far, 2020 well you can you can go no, back. sorry bush 2000 bush 2000 there's bush 2000 but but you know for me and here, Jason, I'm pretty sure you and I disagree, but I remember when McConnell made uh, the decision over Merrick Garland in the Supreme Court. Ironically, Merrick Garland's in it as well, again. I thought to me that was, you know, by the books, fine, but it was a nasty step, a nasty step that really damaged uh, a level of trust um, in in, yes, it again, was legal but nasty. Le legal but nasty and really sharp elbowed in a way that I think left a lot of uh, lasting damage. But roll back from that. Uh, you said correctly, I think, uh, Shadi, that, you know, part of the prudence of the Obama administration, you're pointing to the financial criminals. 
the 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 better case is in fact that he didn't uh, torture. actually prosecute the entire Bush administration for torture. Exactly. I think that is a much uh, closer uh, parallel to this. He said, "We're not going to do this. We're going to close the the the, the this chapter, even though there there you know might be a case to be brought against certain people that made certain decisions that do not and could be found uh, to be." Contrary to all sorts of statutes, um, he decided not to do that, and and I think that was a very prudent move. But going back further, as you said, Bush two thousand was was uh, uh, radicalizing for Democrats. Um, uh, they saw they and it was again this kind of disjunct between uh, you know seeing. Uh, two different things and then interpreting things completely differently. But, uh, you know, go further back than that. Uh, it was it was, again, the 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 hounding of Bill Clinton um, over, you know, what ended up being lying about a blowjob. Um, and again, I'm not going to get into the, the details of, of like who's right or wrong, but this is a cycle that we've been, you know, a circle that we've been sort of going down and sort of uh, cycling down the toilet uh, sort of collectively on this. And I, I insist on that. This is a collective endeavor. You can you can pick the side, pick the point at which it really got bad and say, this is the side that did it, and they are the ones that are really bad at this. But this, in my, contrary to you, Shadi, this is why I say we as a society are increasingly unable to sustain democracy rather than one side or the other not being committed to democratic outcomes. It's the same thing. But, but I think... Putting it my way as opposed to your way gets us out of this idea that there are any heroes in any of this. And I think that's really important at this point is to recognize okay, that look, no one's acting heroic. I didn't say anything heroically. about heroes. No, but in, I, in our okay, discussions, but... you're, you're worried that one side is less committed to democracy than the other. My counterargument to you is we collectively are circling the drain and as a society are unable to sustain a democracy. That it's not that it's not a set of beliefs and, and, and um, you know, moral commitments to, to values that's really at stake here, that it's actually our ability to stick to a democratic proceduralism is uh, informed and is, is shaped by our broader societal health, which is in trouble. That's my argument. Right. And I mean, and I okay, mean, the but whole... is that... Mm. Go on, Jason. Well, I was just going to say the I think Demir is, is hitting on a fundamental conservative insight that, that our founders had, which is that no person is going to prevent uh, you from, is going to sustain a democracy or prevent you from having a democracy. You know, when I've always, when some people say, well, he's an autocrat, it's like, well, I mean, that requires certain institutions and structures. It's, you know, it's fine. Our, our system is supposed to be set up so that it's fine if the president kind of, you know, wants to be an autocrat. A lot of our presidents have, right? I mean, FDR, Jackson, Lincoln, arguably in some ways, and the tyrant, you know, 20th century. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> pre-Watergate presidents. I mean, there's all sorts of presidents, right, who have wanted to make choices that, you know, it, it's it's not about the choices that they want to make. It's about how they're constrained institutionally and following a procedure. So I think Demir's right that the the way to think about it is, do we have the capacity to to have to stick to the procedure and have the the balances necessary? Putting putting your faith in an individual to have to have good motives and to therefore or or a party. Um, you know, it, there, there's something to that. I mean, we talked about civic civic virtue, but but there's going to be competition in the system, and the parties are going to push the limits. And and the question is, can the system hold? Can it contain this sort of back and forth that's inherent to human 
human relations and, and human politics, which is not always uh, in the public interest. And, you know, I mean, it's the, you know, as, as Madison said, the clash, the clash of interests is supposed to be productive in some way. So I, I, I do think, you know, and it ends up and it's ironic because if you if you start thinking, well, this person is pro-democracy, therefore they're a hero. I mean, you end up destroying the 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 uh, what you're trying to build because you're you end up, you know, putting your faith in an individual or party beyond what what it can sustain. We should all be very down on any individual and, and party to sustain our our uh, to sustain democracy, because, as you say, it's not a matter of, of personal preference. It's an institutional uh, framework. So, okay, I'll, I'll just take issue with a couple things. I mean, first of all, in terms of the system, we can change our institutional setup uh, for the foreseeable future. It's not as if we're going to abolish electoral college or come up with a parliamentary system. We're working with what we have for the time being. And because that's not going to change, then the question for me is what can we affect? And I'm not just talking about just one or two individuals, I'm trying to make the case that each American first, so th there's two levels. One is, you know, because we as writers think, you know, we want to actually influence how people think to some degree. I want everyone who listens to this podcast or reads my work anywhere to decide to commit themselves to small d democracy, no ifs, ands, and buts. I mean, that's the first thing. Um, but then on the collective level, uh, I think that what parties think, are you guys there? I'm there. Jason just muted himself. <laughs> okay, Keep going. Sorry, Keep going. I'm the there. static disappeared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah the sta <laughs> okay. All right, I'm going to have to edit. Now I'm going to have to edit because of that. Goods. Go on. No, but you can keep it. I mean, this is going to be in the in the subscribers only episode. They yeah. would love yeah. this authenticity. I'll decide later. This keep is Shadi unplugged. Keep going, Shadi unplugged. <laughs> okay, but look, parties. So we can talk about whether the Democratic Party writ large um, is willing to respect the legitimacy of the other side winning or the Republican Party. I mean, when it comes when it's not just ordinary Trump supporters who thought that the 2020 election was stolen, on the highest level, there were senior Republican figures and officials who were willing to go along with whatever you want to call it, the quote unquote big lie. That's, that's not an individual thing. That is at the level of parties. And that if we could change that, if if our parties could actually recommit in some fundamental way through, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I've wondered about a national dialogue process, some kind of um, maybe code of conduct or pact. These are things that usually happen in democratic transitions in third world, you know, third world and second world countries and so forth. So it's odd to bring up a national dialogue process in the context of the US. But I feel like there has to be some agreement on the rules of the game where we come and say, OK, this is OK, we're going to come together. Uh, I don't I don't mean to sound like uh, I don't like come together. It makes it sound like come together a kumbaya sort of <laughs> <laughs> go on too. But how do how do we come to an agreement about the rules of the game and and the fact that we are willing to accept that the other party might be in power for four years or eight years. Oftentimes I hear Democrats talking about as if 
if Republicans are in power at any point in the foreseeable future, it's the end of the world. That attitude has to change. And if there are senior Democrats who go along with that kind of rhetoric, that is a problem that has to be addressed. Yeah, sure. I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this whole uh, national dialogue and truth and reconciliation because, again, I really don't believe – I mean, I know this is fundamentally where you and I part ways, Shadi, right? I mean, you, you believe that the role of, of people is to, to preach, uh, intellectuals is to preach and to convince, and that this, this actually matters in, in a fundamental way. I wrote that essay a few weeks ago about progress without, without actually – progressives that wasn't the actual title whatever it was but it was this idea that that certain things sort of come out of the system as we have it and and i would put to you that that our democracy works or doesn't because of the society not because of the system as it's structured whether it's parliamentary or not i don't think we could sustain a parliamentary system i think on the margins it might make a difference and some of these things could get more dissipated or not but what we're dealing with here is a more fundamental question about our society as a whole being able to sustain democracy and it comes down to trust and trust is not built through dialogue is the other thing i just I, I don't buy that you know i think all these truth and reconciliation things happen after wars when a society is exhausted there's a victor and you know a, a loser you know in places where there isn't a victor and loser and in my mind obviously it's bosnia where you know everyone's a victim and everyone's a criminal in some sort of way and that's what everyone feels you don't build a polity around that and you have a failed state and even though all the efforts at dialogue and bringing people together and talking about it, it doesn't matter. You have to build a society and a social consensus on these sorts of things for it to work. And I think what we're watching is that social consensus breaking down. What gives me hope or, you know, maybe doesn't make me despair so much is partly what we were talking to Walter before. We have been here before. This country has trouble with consensus and our weird political system, which... Uh, when applied elsewhere, has it worked? As you pointed well, uh, pointed out well, Shadi, maybe the parliamentary system is more robust than a presidential system. Maybe political science and, and democracy studies bear this out, that there's more stability and it, 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 it bears this stuff out. But I, I remain convinced that, that you know, if we are at a, at a, at a level of discord, meh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure it's going to matter at that point. Because again, this is not about belief in ideas and it's not ideas that are driving this. I mean, every insofar as everything is an idea, but as long as that level of social trust is missing, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about when we okay, talk but about why power is the social trust missing? If I could just because why well, we have to ask ourselves why is that the case? And I would argue that in part it's because of fundamentally divergent ideologies, fundamentally different conceptions of the world, of identity, of culture, of religion, correct, of the state. The whole, I mean, that's, how is that not related to ideas? That's what I said. Fine. Everything, everything's an idea. Everything's a belief. But if you don't have something, which also is an idea, a society that coheres, uh, there's, persuasion's not going to do it. That's my, my ultimate okay, belief. But then, okay, now, then sure, how do you and, come and, and, up sure, with a society that coheres? And that's the, the ultimate question of what, is, what makes a society, what, what, what is a society that works that doesn't? And that's also been my, my big sort of criticism, not big criticism, but my sort of pushing you on the democracy stuff. I don't think you take any group of people and say, democracy will solve your difference and expect that to work. And it's not about convincing a bunch of people that, ah, yes, democracy is not perfect, but at least we won't be at each other's throats. I think there's something much more fundamental about, about okay, what so a what's your answer? Is. So, okay, let's get practical. I, okay. So what does that actually mean in practice? What you're suggesting, what is that, 
what do we do? What should Americans or institutions here in this country actually do? Because ultimately we're talking about real life. So what are the practical implications of your, of your view? And maybe this also goes back to Jason's um, call for wisdom and forbearance. I guess I come back to this. How? Uh, I'll let Jason speak for himself. My theory of the case is that we're in a period of decay. Um, I don't know. I can't judge how bad that decay is, and I don't have any practical means of of addressing okay, that. that doesn't, but, okay. but but I don't. You know, this is this is you're 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 the publisher asking for that horrible uh, last third of the book, which is like a ten point plan for restoring our democracy. We always agree that that's the most bullshit part of any book, and. I'm I'm just saying that as you know as a matter of analysis I don't owe you that I can I I I I, I owe you I owe you uh, oh. a description of 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 uh, of the decay that we're facing and ultimately you know uh, there's people have have thrown out more relying more on federalism uh, pulling us apart rather than bringing us together depowering and lowering the stakes of federal elections letting people decide on their own again in that sense I think. Dobbs is proving to be a, a a wonderful decision because it's it's taken a really big issue off the federal docket. Um, I don't know. That's if you really want some sort of you know canned responses on what can be done or could be done. But no, note that none of these are about individual virtue and people believing in anything. It's actually pulling people apart and lowering the stakes, maybe institutionally. Okay, there's an answer. Mayor, I'll, I'll go. I'll well, I'll I'll just um, raise a smaller thing, which is I think. All the things you said are are right. I think that um, getting our political process pulled back away from this from the criminal justice process is an important thing. I mean, you know, it, it would be interesting for somebody to study how this how this works comparatively in Israel. Netanyahu is is on trial and and may win the next election. I think that this idea of pursuing Trump criminally, you know, I I agree. I mean, for as much as I've talked about you know, institutions mattering more than um, individuals and, and, and the virtue of specific individuals. I think that Trump is a bad <laughs> influence on us. And I think but the, I think the idea of pursuing him criminally to, to get rid of him, the idea, you know, it's always some new legal theory about, you know, mo most recently, Mark Elias tweeted about how if they convict him of mishandling records, he'll be disqualified from the presidency, which is constitutionally ridiculous. But there's uh, this idea of one weird trick to get rid of Trump uh, through 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 prosecutors just ain't going to happen. And I, and I keep come back, coming back to this post by Ned Foley, who's a professor at Ohio State uh, Law School. He posted sort of that Mitch McConnell had it backwards when Mitch McConnell gave a speech when he was acquitting Trump of impeachment, saying, well, I'm acquitting him as far as impeachment goes, but that's OK because the, the criminal process is still available. You know, that was such a cop out. That was such a classic example of the legislature trying to avoid tough political decisions and giving it back to the executive, the prosecutors. I mean, the Trump is a political problem. The to the extent that he poses a problem, you know, a, a challenge to, to the American system, it's him and, and his sort of cult of personality that he's built. And and it was up to the Republican Senate conference and and the House crafters of the impeachment articles who did a terrible job and. Um, in, in, in crafting their misleading articles of impeachment, but he wasn't impeached, okay? The political process refused to end his political career, and the idea of using the criminal process as a replacement is, is just never gonna work precisely because it's about consensus. And as Demir said, you can't use law to force a consensus that doesn't exist, because law is a product of that uh, consensus and a product of 
the political community that that constitutes the state. So it, it can't you can't just trick uh, use a trick to 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 exile somebody from politics. It needs to be the political system, and that's what the Constitution contemplates in in impeachment. And and it wasn't done. So therefore, you know, the next so who. So we're not going to have Republican senators voting on his political career, but we are going to have Republican primary voters uh, voting on his political career. And I think he could they could end his political career plausibly, I think. But I think what we're doing by revving up the machinery of, of criminal justice against him again is 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 going to prolong his political career because it represents a fundamental misunderstanding of, of how this works. Yeah, I think that's that's really good, Jason. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the thing that this sort of gets um to me uh shoddy as a debate that 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 you and i have had uh about whether america deserves trump or not it had for me there's i think a profound case that trump is is us trump is a manifestation of our social dysfunction he is an accelerant and his personal characteristics make it worse but this is why i firmly believe you know, uh, that sort of question, do we or do we not deserve the leaders that we get? All of the leaders ultimately are manifestations of the the pathologies of the society that, that they end up leading. From Saddam Hussein that's not, onwards. Okay, that's not necessarily, no. I mean, okay, but, okay, that's a big claim. Where is the evidence for that claim? The evidence, How are you coming the counter to that evidence conclusion? is 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 well. I mean, again, I think it's it's a it's as much as well. I I feel like I've made that claim throughout this and and try okay, to back like, up that claim throughout what? this. So the fact that Saddam Hussein is um, a reflection of the Iraqi people, or that the Iraqi people somehow deserved Saddam's rule for God the, knows the Iraqi, how long. The Iraqi that state, seems totally the Iraqi state, the Iraqi state was in fact a a a product of of drunken line drawing by colonial powers that that created this thing. And then the Iraqi people themselves, you know, is is an accident of history. And this is where I come down to this is like, you know, you impose democracy on a society which itself doesn't cohere and you get dysfunctions. Now, this is this is later Iraq, which is now, you know, uh, you follow this stuff more closely, perhaps turning some sort of corner. And this is maybe an argument for your procedural democracy, like shaving down the edges. But it remains a fragile it's society. A lot better now than it was under Saddam. Yes. But Saddam so was a product so of the society that he that was that was created uh, as a result of the sort of post-colonial thing. And Trump is an, a okay, product it, of our society, is a product and and the dysfunctions that he brings to the fore have everything to do with with the fact that that our 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 trust is low and he is able to basically boost himself and mobilize on this that's my argument ultimately uh take it or <laughs> okay, leave it okay, but, look. but you come down on this on a, on a moral like personal level and we all as individuals come together and you know through rational acts no. uh basically govern ourselves I, I i think these are all sort of i don't know metaphysical just so stories uh as it were and i i i don't think they're actually fundamentally meaningful i also know that jason has to run really quickly shoddy so uh oh he does yeah. wait really because yeah. can i just say one i just Go. want to say something very quickly say on something that. and then let jason wrap us out here okay well look i think you have a stronger case when it comes to democracies because people actually vote for their leaders even if the process is messed up flawed what unrepresentative whatever it might be i don't think you can make this argument in relation to um, autocracies, because oftentimes authoritarian regimes are imposed by force, by brute force. So to say that um, Saddam or whatever other dictator 
is a reflection of the people. I just don't see how we make that claim empirically, but uh, we don't have to go into that. I think you're on maybe stronger ground when it comes to democracies that in some ways, yes, Trump is a manifestation of American society. That's different though than saying that Americans deserve Trump. If we Those get are two an autocracy, if we get an autocracy, it's because we cannot sustain a democracy. That's my argument. And it, we don't sustain a democracy by belief and commitment, but because as a society, we don't cohere. And this is it where autocracies mean we will come have from. It that outcome. What's dessert? It, like who before who? God? Right, you well, know, I don't believe. But anyway, Jason, please. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I, have, if I have anything to add. I mean, I think, I mean, I do think, I, I don't, I, the optimistic thing is I think we're we're so big and so diverse, we're not, we're just really not fit for an actual national autocracy yeah. um, of any kind. Uh, so, you know, I think more likely we don't have a democracy. We have kind of a, a failed and inconsistent and patchwork sort of governance, weaker, weaker state. Um, but, you know, but I think I think just, you know, the, the fact that this this Trump story has resonated in this in this way, you know, and and to me, just sort of brought back some of the darkest sort of tendencies of 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 uh, of, of the way that Trump makes contact with America's political psyche. You know, I guess there's there's going to be more to come of of this sort of dark spiral, and um, and that's why I hope that that voters, who are ultimately the only ones to to do it, are in, in the Republican primary are going to have the wisdom to uh, to reject him. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm. I'm. That's I'm very actually much vaguely agreeing. optimistic. Yeah, and a good place to end, I guess, on a note of optimism. After yeah, you know, and they're not going to reject, and they're not, and they're not going to reject him because they think that you know Merrick Garland is is right and and Trump's so bad. They're just going to reject him if they've had enough of this trend that I that I've decided, and and there's and they think that there's a more hopeful possible way. But but you know that's easy for me to say. I mean, some some people and a lot of people <laughs> feel that you know he's the way to. To fight back against this this assault, so that, that they feel so it's it's by no means by no means a sure thing, and I think Merrick Garland made it more likely uh, by doing this that yeah. that 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 Trump is is going to stay uh, for longer. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Shadi, any parting words? No, no, thank you, Jason, for joining us. This was great. I think we got down to some serious first principles there, which is always our ambition. I think we did a, a surprisingly good job considering we're talking about a news event. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, Jason, you're pointing, you're, you're sort of getting at this, this whole thing unleashes some pretty fundamental questions. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Thanks a lot, Jason. Talk soon. Yeah, always, always fun. Great. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye, Jason.